Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. It's no secret that the finance sector tends to undervalue, even demean, non-financial expertise. In particular, it sets its sights on expertise in gender equality, social justice issues, and the local contextual knowledge that is so rich. This failure to embrace the value of diverse expertise reinforces bias in financial decision-making and has a direct impact on the outcome of investments. This leads to overlooked opportunities, unseen and therefore unmitigated risks, and a wide range of unintended consequences. I begin with a silly story about cake and how very nice men tried to explain to me that women would understand finance better if they used a metaphor of cake. It was a classic moment. Next, and a little more seriously, I talked with a very close friend, Dorothy Nyembe, longtime partner of Criterion, CEO of Mennonite Economic Development Associates, also known as Mita. She talks about her own experience of owning her role as an investor and in some ways overcoming the barriers to people seeing her in that role. And third, I'll discuss Criterion's approach to building bridges into the world of finance for people who have different kinds of expertise, because in the end, to have it matter, to have different expertise matter, we need to have different expertise show up. And so how do we expand who sees themselves as having the power and the extraordinarily valuable expertise necessary to change the financial system as we know it? Good Capital, the firm that I launched with Kevin Jones and Tim Freundlich, went on to be part of, um, well, Tim and Kevin in particular, with other partners built out SOCAP. Early days of SOCAP, the Social Capital Markets Conference, that you know, arguably one of the bigger events in innovative finance, impact investing these days. I got to be at the founding tables of that, and it was, it was kind of a cool place to be. Right? So I remember one of the meetings, literally, that was intended as a design session for what SOCAP should look like. I don't remember what city I was in, but it was a conference room and a bunch of us sitting around this round table. And then off to the side, I don't know why I remember this, but there was like a speakerphone that was somebody trying to dial in from outside. And so there was this kind of speakerphone sitting up on the top of a a stack of shelves. And so the discussion was going on and we were talking about what was possible with SOCAP. And then this squawk box off from this shelf said, I've just come back from a conference. I think it was the Council of Foundations. I just found it frustrating to talk to these women leading foundations and they just didn't understand investing. So you know what I did? 
he's talking out of this box, not having any visual, right? This is was not pre-Zoom calls, right? He had no visual of what the room was. He just had the arrogance of talking from this squawk box and said, you know what I did to help them really understand? I used an analogy of a cake and to think about a layer cake. And if they could imagine a layer cake and the layering of capital, I think I really got through to them. And I'm sitting in this room surrounded by friends thinking, surely the whole room is going to erupt thinking this is, this is crazy. This guy is explaining that the way we're going to explain finance to women is to describe a layer cake. And I looked to my right and I looked to my left and these were friends. And I looked around and I realized I was the only woman in the room and nobody thought this was odd. They carried on about the challenges in talking to foundation executives and how we need to find better ways to explain things. I don't think anybody else had other metaphors besides cake, but I also Oh, those just little bit past triggering moments, but those moments when you realize that you are so fundamentally outside of the experience of everybody else in the room. I just remember my ears ringing and I, I just kept looking to this very nice man sitting next to me and I couldn't understand why he didn't hear it. We have had an assumption. I think there is this undergirding, deeply problematic assumption that people who are trying to create social change don't have the same level of bias that everybody else does. I experienced insane amounts of bias as a woman working in impact investing, just insane. And I think the reality is that it's even worse for women of color, it's worse for gender minorities. The level of pain that is inflicted as we ensure that people feel that they are strangers to this process by even the smallest steps. He was just talking about a cake, but that ensured that I did not feel welcome in that room and nobody made sure I did. And so it's just a reminder, keep looking around Make sure that we are creating hospitable places where we are ensuring that those who are challenged by the very issues that we're addressing and trying to address through our changes are seen, are heard, are welcomed. When I was a senior in college, I was living part of the time in New York and part of the time I was obviously still going to school at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And I have this visceral memory of driving over the Williamsburg Bridge and seeing a school. I must have been looking at the roof of the school, but I remember seeing this school and thinking, what if I wanted to be a teacher? How would I get into that school. I'm looking down from this bridge, looking out into the city saying, I want to get into that school. I also didn't have a grand plan for how to work in finance. 
spent my 20s as a teacher and then moved eventually into working in finance, I didn't use the formal paths to be able to gain access to finance. I didn't get an MBA. I didn't study finance in any school, actually. And I'm really glad for the pathways. Right? There's many things that are actually working to increase intentionally pathways for people to have access to professions. And honestly, the way I got into teaching is I was the sort of in my senior year, recruiters would come from the New York City public schools to elite colleges and sort of shepherd us through the system. And so I did have somebody who in the end guided me through this system, a person who took my hand and said, this is how you get a job here. I found my way into finance through a series of conversations. Through friends, I remember a conversation with a friend who had been working on uh, some China tech something, and I didn't know anything about finance. And all of a sudden, he's talking about terms like points in a deal. And I was like, wow, I wonder what that's about. And so there's a way in which we find our way into systems through relationships, where we can begin to imagine our role, imagine our place in systems that are foreign and distant from us. And relationships are the pathways into these buildings and systems and structures that seem so very distant. The way we get there is through relationships. What's important here, though, is that we are not only waiting to be invited, standing outside of the system and expecting that somebody will step out and guide us in. We also need to figure out how do we intentionally build the relationships? How do we use our own agency to build the relationships, particularly if we're trying to make bridges between professions? Right. So a lot of people come and talk to Criterion about sort of, I've been working in social change. How do I get into finance? How do I bridge my knowledge about systems change or social change or gender or whatever it is? How do I bridge that with systems of finance? And so Criterion has really committed to using our access to build bridges for others, to use our power to invite others and to inspire them then to continue to invite. And I think about Elias Mundi, one of my favorite people, friend of ours in Kenya, who we met because we were doing a workshop on how to use finance as a tool for social change. And as a result of our reaching out and invitation, he showed up. But then he kept showing up. He came to, oh, I don't know how many. Elias has come to maybe three convergences. He shows up at the events that Criterion hosts. He joins actively in conversations and engages. And as a result of that, he's built a new set of relationships and now regularly sends us pictures of the workshops that he's leading in Kenya as a social justice leader working on gender rights issues, on particularly on gender-based violence. He's now leading workshops in the commercial sector, in finance, talking about how to use finance as a tool to address gender-based violence. The challenge here, right, is twofold. One is how do we accept invitations? How do we step into the places when somebody is stepping out and saying, hey, you know what? I think this is a place where you might belong. This is a place where what you know matters. 
How do we jump between fields, not get stuck in the boundaries and the confines of the field or profession that we sit in? Because innovation comes because we move between fields. Systems change people in general are people who have worked in more than one profession because they start thinking outside of the base of their particular field of expertise and seeing connections in different ways. And that requires two things. One is that you get onto the bridge and that you look out and imagine what other systems could look like. But then once you end up in those systems, that you be the people who build the next set of bridges, who build the Williamsburg Bridge that actually gets us into schools or gets us into finance and moves us in to places where we can shape different professions bring together different fields of expertise, break down the boundaries. Innovation happens at the places where professions, fields of expertise break down, where we're building new bridges that connect knowledge in new ways and disrupt our assumptions of who belongs, whose knowledge matters, and that requires bridges. Hey, Dorothy, such a privilege to get to have these conversations with you. One of my first memories of meeting you was in your office at Meta, and I was brought, I think I was escorted over to meet you, and you were relatively new still at Meta. And so that was sort of my story of you began as this impressive, cool CEO of a relatively substantial NGO. And I was like, ooh, impressive, cool woman. Over the years as getting to know you, one of the things that I would love to learn more about is your history as an investor before Meta, your history of as, as an investor in Africa in the work that you've been doing over the years with your family. Can you, can you start a little bit on what is that story like? No, Joy, it's such a pleasure to get to have any kind of conversation with you at any time. I think it's very interesting because, you know, as an African woman working in international development, there are so many assumptions around me. You know, and I work in civil society. So one of the assumptions when I joined media was that I knew nothing about investing and what that could be, look like or feel like. And I listened very carefully because like every other African and many of us from developing countries of a woman of African origin, we tend to take care of a huge amount, you know, a very big concentric circle of family. You know, family for me is about 200 people. It's not me and my husband and my children. And so we do a lot of that work. It is part of our culture. And so, but very early and very soon you realize that even if you continue to try to help your family and you cannot do things at scale and if try to impact at a systems level, you virtually are trying to fix people and keep throwing them back into a poor and bad system and hoping that they will navigate that system and that they will survive. So our family experience showed us that it wasn't enough to try and give a bit of you know access to capital to A, B, or C, D cousin. It was really figuring out how do you partner with the financial institutions that were there, whether they're microfinance, whether they're B-class bankers and everything, so that they could reach a broader population. 
and put out instruments that could do more than you could do for just your immediate family. Can I just go back though? I, that's I, that's the piece I think we want to get to. Before we go there, can you just tell a story or two of how were you investing in your cousins though? I mean, because that is a part of it. Before we even go to the systems piece, I don't know. What were some of your favorite investments inside of this town, of this community, this family of 200 people? What were some of your favorite things that you invested in? You know, so the first thing that we always invest in is we invest in education. So we say, yeah, go to school. We believe in education. And so we invest in education. Then the second thing is those who wanted to do entrepreneurship. So we have people who have uh, said they want to go into business running cocoa farms, you know, that have failed. We have people who've gone into like agroforestry, you know, cousins and nephews and nieces that, you know, were huge investments. They come up with a small business plan and you trust them. You put your heart in it. And in some of the cases, the failure was their lack of an understanding of how to run a business. Right. And so on. And so some successes, I assume, as well, were, were, they weren't all failures, right? Some successes within that as well? or Yes, no, some successes, absolutely some successes, you know, within that as well and so on. We have those who they want to start a small restaurant business. So it's not like a franchise, but, you know, you start to cook in the local community and retail, you know, cook food and things like that. You have those who want to get into small transportation business. And so we do have uh, relatives who got into small transportation business who've done really well. They continue to grow and have actually created stable employment for themselves and for others and the entire chain. And a lot of it is transporting people and transporting agricultural products. So we do have success stories. But again, remember that if you do that for your family, even if that's 200, population is 2 million, 20 million, right? So how do you work where the same amount of money could have greater effect? And it's really about investing in those kinds of institution intermediaries that will be able to take care of my cousin pool and nephew nieces pool but also bring other tools to them, whether it is knowledge about how to run a business. So there are other collateral things that those institutions and intermediaries could bring to my family that we were not able to bring right away. So some of them failed, some of them accessed it. But as the internet became widely available and uh, easy to access, it, it changed a lot. You know, people are able to do a whole lot more now than they were able to do 20 years ago. I'm just wondering, as I sit in Connecticut, how much of my own assumptions about how investing works, I'm projecting onto this story that you're telling. Were there, because I want to ask all kinds of questions, like how did you structure it? And were there term sheets within your family? And how did all, like, I've got a whole bunch of stuff from my own frame of reference that's just running through my head. How wrong am I? How different was it? No, I think there was no written term sheets. There are no written term sheets, but I think they're invisible term sheets. It's a very much a community of trust. It is really about an honor system. It's about if the cousin takes it today, you know, it's twenty, thirty thousand dollars. It usually wasn't, you know, bigger than that. They always think about if I do well and I can pay this back, it will be used to pay forward for somebody else. And so there's a whole honor system around that. 
And very much you believe that, you know, when you do something and you do it well, you're doing it for yourself, your family, your children, and your community. When you go wrong, it tells, you know, so without a term sheet, without a credit rating, we're able to still believe and build that trust, give out the money, and people get the paid. You know, I think even, I don't have the right stats, but there's a thing about, you know, the the rate of repayment in those informal structures is much higher and better than through, say, the banking system, rate of repayment in the banking system in Canada, for example. Did you learn anything about your own power in your family sitting in that you know, often in a decision-making position. What what did you learn about your own power? Because again, there's this, the forward-looking story is now you're running a very large investment organization. And that sort of, what did you learn about your own power as an investor? So I think for me, it was, it was so important. I already, the power of, due to my education, I bring power. My geographic location, I bring power. My access to finance, I bring power. And yet the only only my cousins and my nieces and nephews, they know what they need to do. They even know how their markets work and what thing will work best in their market. I think the only conversation we would have with them would be, you know best and we're going to trust you. And we looked at the, if you were to do well, what's the result? We did not worry so much about the process. And that, you know, if we could focus on this is the input here and this is the results you are looking for, do the best you can in your process to get to those results. It allowed them to work at their own pace, to do the things that they knew that they were going to do to be able to to make it, to do the things that they needed to do to be able to repay back their loans and so on. But it was really the culture and the desire to be able to pay forward. And they also they hope that they become independent and no longer dependent. So it was always about, I don't need you to give me money every day for food. I'm going to run a business. I'm going to do well so that I can feed myself. I can feed others. I can do what you're doing for me. I can do it for others. So in the transition from before you showed up at Meta, what's changed in your understanding of your own power as an investor? now or pretty much anything about that sort of transition from you were doing this it wasn't the first thing you told me when i met you you said you were a civil society leader not by the way i've been investing for a long time so there were power dynamics in how identities get constructed for sure no i think it is oh a lot has changed a lot has changed i think at media we're in a position to as I say, bring a significant amount of capital, more than just me and my family can ever bring to any community. And I think for me, it is how do we bring that in a way that is going to be most efficient and most productive and most sustainable? Because the most important thing is not to create a false economy. By false economy, you, you bring it and they bring so many other things around that people can't just afford. It's because it's part of a project. And when that project leaves, that false economy cannot be sustained. I think for me, it is really, how do I continue to have the opportunity to show that as we design the work that we do at Media, we're doing it in a manner that is actually thinking about the grassroots solutions. You know, the concept of subsidiarity, right? That concept where the people who have the problem know the best solution. 
It may not sound like your solution. It may not have the four walls of your solution, but you can actually take it and then help them, work with them to reframe it so that you can fund it. But, you know, don't distort it. You just reframe it and work with them, but don't take, don't change it into something. If they're telling you the problem is an orange and you show up and all you have is apples, don't turn the orange into apples. How do we take the orange and, you know, make it into orange juice? It's on this side, we like orange juice or something, but don't, don't change it for them. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.